You are now listening to episode 19 of I'm an Adult, Now What? Hosted by Jade Pattenden. Hi, welcome to this episode. Um, For this one, I'll be talking about one of the best books I've ever read, which is A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle, which is basically the book I credit with like changing my life and uh I can be a dramatic person I know but like this actually changed my life to the point that I got it tattooed on my body recently which I don't like the other tattoos I have are like my granddad's signature in a cross like I really wouldn't put something on my body unless I actually care about it like that's how much of an impact this book made on me um yeah, and I went to the Oprah and Eckhart Tolle show, um, I think a couple months ago, and I just think he's such an amazing person because she asked him, like, um, how do you feel when, like, people come up to you and they're like, hey, you changed my life, uh, and he's like, well, I'm just a channel for, like, the collective consciousness, or yeah for the collective consciousness to like reach other people so it's not really me I'm just like a vessel and uh, a voice a channel whatever you want to call it um to help people like who are caught off from the collective consciousness if that makes sense like he's just such a spiritual person um and just seems super humble and everything so yeah made me super happy but um I'm going to read the description of the book from goodreads.com because it summarizes it way better than I ever could. It says, In a new earth, Tolle expands on these powerful ideas from his book The Power of Now to show how transcending our ego-based state of consciousness is not only essential to personal happiness but also the key to ending conflict and suffering throughout the world. Tolly describes how our attachment to the ego creates the dysfunction that leads to anger, jealousy, and unhappiness, and shows readers how to awaken to a new state of consciousness and follow the path to a truly fulfilling existence. The Power of, no- the Power of Now was a question-and-answer handbook. A New Earth has been written as a traditional narrative, offering anecdotes and philosophies in a way that is accessible to all. Illuminating, enlightening, and uplifting, A New Earth is a profoundly spiritual manifesto for a better way of life and for building a better world um yeah that's basically a pretty good summary of the book um yeah basically when you read it like it's uh a lot to do with the ego and um that's something that i misunderstood before i read this book because i thought that like oh if you have an ego it's just like someone who's cocky but everyone has an ego and uh it shows in everyday life like when um in arguments and conflicts and everything like um minor and major and yeah it so it's just basically teaches you how to kind of keep yours um in check which would create a more peaceful existence in the world and the only person you can control is yourself so if you can do that then it will help like the with the madness that's going on in the world essentially um which is why it's really important to me and everything um the concepts are really simple but very deep so it really does make you stop and be like whoa holy shit and then like I don't know I would have to like stop reading it go and like reflect 
on a bunch of stuff in my life and then come back to it when I felt ready to. So it took a really long time for me to read this. But um, yeah, I just, I literally will look back on my life and remember reading this book like before reading A New Earth and after reading A New Earth because I just felt like such a shift in my perspective, how I view things. You can understand humans more, you understand yourself so much more. Um, I react less to things where I'd get really upset, really stressed out um, because I just have a new understanding uh, to things. And yeah, it's, it's just super interesting. Okay, so diving into the book, um, I'm just going to say like a bunch of different kind of quotes from the book. Um, I won't necessarily expand on all of them. I might, but I'll try and make it clear when I'm quoting the book and when I'm not. Obviously, this was written by Eckhart Tolle, um, so all credit goes to him, which is ironic because he talks about how getting credit is also kind of feeding your ego, but lol. Um yeah so let's get started so at the beginning of the book um he says quote this book's main purpose is not to add new information or beliefs to your mind or to try to convince you of anything but to bring about a shift in consciousness that is to say to awaken in that sense this book is not interesting interesting means you can keep your distance play around with ideas and concepts in your mind agree or disagree this book is about you it will change your state of consciousness or it will be meaningless. It can only awaken those who are ready. Not everyone is ready yet, but many are. And with each person who awakens, the momentum in the collective consciousness grows and it becomes easier for others, unquote. So yeah, when the guy who told me about this book told me about it, he said it's honestly just one of those things that if you're not ready to hear the concepts, like um, you're not open-minded, uh, you're kind of in a place where you're just feeling stubborn, um, and whatnot, then this book won't really do anything for you. But if you are open-minded and you are maybe looking for a change or you're feeling a bit lost or something, like this will really help to like ground you in life. It's it's a very interesting experience, but um, it's just a very personalized experience because everyone will take something different from it. But before starting to like dive into different quotes from the book, uh, I think it's important to explain briefly what like the ego is and he does explain it in detail but I'm just going to try and like do a brief summary but basically quote for thousands of years humanity has been increasingly mind possessed failing to recognize the possessing entity as quote not self unquote through complete identification with the mind a false sense of self the ego came into existence the density of the ego depends on the degree to which you, the consciousness, are identified with your mind, with thinking. Thinking is no more than a tiny aspect of the totality of consciousness, the totality of who you are, unquote. So basically he refers to the ego as the unobserved mind. It's the voice in your head that you hear when you think and um, like if someone's being rude to you and in your head you're like oh they're such a bitch and whatnot like that's your ego talking and stuff so there's a separation between the thoughts and who you are like the essence of who you are and it's also to do with your sense of I like who am I and how you choose to describe yourself like and identify with 
and when you feel like someone is trying to attack you whether it's your like beliefs or your looks or whatever it is your ego will react in a defensive manner because you feel like you're getting attacked for who you are as a person because you identify with the things that they're attacking but basically that's your ego and you're more than the things that you identify with um I don't know if that makes sense like it's honestly so hard to summarize what he's saying in like a few sentences without me rambling on but he really does explain it super super well in the beginning of the book and then from that point on it's easy to understand what he refers to when he talks about the ego in the following chapters and another thing I want to say is he says that basically if you read this and then you understand the separation between your ego um, like your thoughts and then who you are as a person and stuff but you still continue to like have your ego there because it's normal you can't be like oh fuck I still have my ego because the fact that you recognize that you're reacting um, because of your ego that is like I don't know like a step of enlightenment like that is the point of it's just being aware of it because then you can be like oh okay I understand why I'm reacting like that instead of just reacting and being angry about something or upset about something um so yeah it's not to say that you can't all of a sudden react to things it's like you'll still naturally do that but then you'll be able to stop yourself because you realize it's just your ego being defensive and it's not actually who you are this is one of my favorite quotes from this book from page 41 quote life will give you whatever experience is most helpful for the evolution of your consciousness how do you know this is the experience you need? Because this is the experience you're having at this moment, unquote. So that definitely helped me feel less stressed in situations where I felt like my world was crumbling around me because I'm like, you know what? Every hard thing I've been through in the past, I've come out of it a better like person and whatnot. And so now going forward, I'm like, every tough situation, I'm like, this is just supposed to grow me in some way and knowing that brings you a lot of peace page 62 quote resentment is the emotion that goes with complaining and the mental labeling of people and adds even more energy to the ego resentment means to feel bitter indignant aggrieved or offended you resent other people's greed their dishonesty their lack of integrity what they are doing what they did in the past what they said what they failed to do what they should or shouldn't have done the ego loves it Instead of overlooking unconsciousness in others, you make it into their identity. Who is doing that? The unconscious in you. The ego. Sometimes the fault that you perceive in another isn't even there. It is a total misinterpretation. A projection by a mind conditioned to see enemies and to make itself right or superior. At other times, the fault may be there, but by focusing on it, sometimes to the exclusion of everything else, you amplify it. And what you react to in another, you strengthen in yourself. Non-reaction to the ego in others is one of the most effective ways not only of going beyond ego in yourself, but also of dissolving the collective human ego. But you can only be in a state of non-reaction if you can recognize someone's behavior as coming from the ego as being an expression of the collective human dysfunction. 
When you realize it's not personal, there is no longer a compulsion to react as if it were. By not reacting to the ego, you will often be able to bring out the sanity in others, which is the unconditioned consciousness as opposed to the conditioned. At times you may have to take practical steps to protect yourself from deeply unconscious people. This you can do without making them into enemies. Your greatest protection, however, is being conscious. Somebody becomes an enemy if you personalize the unconsciousness that is the ego. Non-reaction is not weakness, but strength. Another word for non-reaction is forgiveness. To forgive is to overlook, or rather to look through. You look through the ego to the sanity that is in every human being as his or her essence, unquote. Page 186. And yes, this is all over the place because my notes are all over the place. So I'll be jumping back and forth in the book. But um, yeah, so page 186, quote, your sense of who you are determines what you perceive as your needs and what matters to you in life. And whatever matters to you will have the power to upset you and disturb you. You can use this as a criterion to find out how deeply you know yourself. What matters to you is not necessarily what you say or believe, but what your actions and reactions reveal as important and serious to you. So you may want to ask yourself the question, what are the things that upset and disturb me? If small things have the power to disturb you, then who you think you are is exactly that, small. That will be your unconscious belief. What are the small things? Ultimately, all things are small things because all things are transient, unquote. Um, yeah, so when I read that, it really hit home because I realized I was reacting to a lot of really unimportant tiny things um, that would happen like at work or what people would say to me and stuff. And that's when I realized I have to do a lot of work on how I feel about myself because yeah, like when you feel good about yourself and you feel confident in yourself and whatnot, you just don't react to things as much as you would when you don't feel that great about yourself, which is a shitty realization, but it's the first step in progressing into um, a better state of mind. So yeah. Page 86, quote, a shy person who is afraid of the attention of others is not free of ego, but has an ambivalent ego that both wants and fears attention from others. The fear is that the attention may take the form of disapproval or criticism, that is to say, something that diminishes the sense of self rather than enhances it. So this shy person's fear of attention is greater than his or her need of attention. Shyness often goes with a self-concept that is predominantly negative, the belief of being inadequate. Any conceptual sense of self, seeing myself as this or that, is ego, whether predominantly positive, I am the greatest, or negative, I am no good. Behind every positive self-concept is the hidden fear of not being good enough. Behind every negative self-concept is the hidden desire of being the greatest or better than others. Behind the confident ego's feeling of and continuing need for superiority is the unconscious fear of inferiority. Conversely, the shy, inadequate ego that feels inferior has a strong hidden desire for superiority. Many people fluctuate between feelings of inferiority and superiority, depending on situations or the people they come into contact with. All you need to know and observe in yourself is this. Whenever you feel superior or inferior to anyone, that's the ego in you." Unquote. 
well i used to be the shyest person on the planet like super quiet and reading this i'm like makes so much sense because um i cared what people thought that's why i was very shy um like it was normally i was shy in public but fine at home that's because i cared that was my ego very interesting stuff page 214 quote allowing the diminishment of the ego the ego is always on guard against any kind of perceived diminishment automatic ego repair mechanisms come into effect to restore the mental form of me when someone blames or criticizes me that to the ego is a diminishment of self and it will immediately attempt to repair its diminished sense of self through self-justification defense or blaming whether the other person is right or wrong is irrelevant to the ego it is much more interested in self-preservation than in the truth this is the preservation of the psychological form of me even such a normal thing as shouting back when another driver calls you idiot is an automatic and unconscious ego repair mechanism. One of the most common ego repair mechanisms is anger, which causes a temporary but huge ego inflation. All repair mechanisms make perfect sense to the ego, but are actually dysfunctional. Those are the most extreme in their dysfunction are physical violence and self-delusion in the form of grandois fantasies. A powerful spiritual practice is consciously to allow the diminishment of ego when it happens without attempting to restore it. I recommend that you experiment with this from time to time. For example, when someone criticizes you, blames you, or calls you names, instead of immediately retaliating or defending yourself, do nothing. Allow the self-image to remain diminished and become alert to what that feels like deep inside you. For a few seconds, it may feel uncomfortable, as if you had shrunk in size. Then you may sense an inner spaciousness that feels intensely alive. You haven't been diminished at all. In fact, you have expanded. You may then come to an amazing realization. When you are seemingly diminished in some way and remain in absolute non-reaction, not just externally but also internally, you realize that nothing real has been diminished, that through becoming less, you become more. When you no longer defend or attempt to strengthen the form of yourself, you step out of identification with form, with mental self-image. Through becoming less in the ego's perception, you in fact undergo an expansion and make room for being to come forward. True power, who you are beyond form, can then shine through the apparently weakened form. This is what Jesus means when he says, deny yourself or turn the other cheek, unquote. So I really started to see a shift in myself when I started practicing this in real life. It is so hard to do. Um, you don't always win these battles. Um, but when you do it, it's so interesting how you feel after. Like you, you kind of feel good. You feel like proud I don't know it's hard to explain maybe that's not how you would feel but just try it it's so interesting um yeah I love this quote jumping back to the beginning on page 14 um quote to recognize one's own sanity is of course the arising of sanity the beginning of healing and transcendence unquote from page 50 Quote, equating the physical sense perceived body that is destined to grow old, wither, and die with I always leads to suffering sooner or later. To refrain from identifying with the body doesn't mean that you neglect, despise, or no longer care for it. 
if it is strong, beautiful, or vigorous, you can enjoy and appreciate those attributes while they last. You can also improve the body's condition through right nutrition and exercise. If you don't equate the body with who you are, when beauty fades, vigor diminishes, or the body becomes incapacitated, this will not affect your sense of worth or identity in any way. In fact, as the body begins to weaken, the formless dimension, the light of consciousness, can shine more easily through the fading form. It is not just You can just as easily identify with a, quote, problematic, unquote, body and make the body's imperfection, illness, or disability into your identity. You may then think and speak of yourself as a sufferer of this or that chronic illness or disability. You receive a great deal of attention from doctors and others who constantly confirm to you your conceptual identity as a sufferer or patient. You then unconsciously cling to the illness because It has become the most important part of who you perceive yourself to be. It has become another thought form with which the ego can identify. Once the ego has found an identity, it does not want to let go. Amazingly, but not infrequently, the ego in search of a stronger identity can and does create illness in order to strengthen. I really like this one because um, I feel like uh, so many people place way too much value in their body like the vessel that carries you through this life um and this just summarizes summarizes it perfectly because um he's saying like enjoy your body while you can like you want to look pretty you want to look handsome whatever do your thing like um you are allowed to enjoy those things but whether it takes 40 years from now or it could be next week when um if you get some sort of injury or whatever to your body um if you place so much value in that as part of your identity then you will cause suffering so yeah it's kind of like you have to learn to realize that that's not actually who you are it's just the carrier for your soul in this life page 66 quote trying to let go to forgive does not work Forgiveness happens naturally when you see that it has no purpose other than to strengthen a false sense of self to keep the ego in place. The seeing is freeing. Jesus' teaching to forgive your enemies is essentially about the undoing of one of the main egoic structures in the human mind. The past has no power to stop you from being present now. Only your grievance about the past can do that. And what is a grievance? The baggage of old thought and emotion." By the way, um, I don't know what Eckhart Tolle's religion is, but he refers to like biblical quotes um, and like just different religions uh, in the book to kind of refer back to how it um, it links into just like teaching you about humanity, I guess. So yeah, it's kind of nice that he refers to other things um, because it kind of shows the good teachings within religions. Page 70, quote, thought can at best point to the truth, but it never is the truth. That's why Buddhists say, quote, the finger pointing to the moon is not the moon, unquote. All religions are equally false and equally true, depending on how you use them. You can use them in service of the ego, or you can use them in the service of the truth. If you believe only your religion is the truth, you're using it in the service of the ego. 
Used in such a way, religion becomes ideology and creates an illusory sense of superiority as well as division and conflict between people. In the service of the truth, religious teachings represent signposts or maps left behind by awakened humans to assist you in spiritual awakening. Awakening, that is to say, in becoming free of identification with form. Unquote. I really love that because I feel like um, there's a lot of conflict um, between religions and I'm not necessarily referring to like wars that start through religious uh, conflict but even just in everyday life like I have this issue with my own mother like her um, believing so strongly in her religious beliefs and kind of not accepting mine and so this book really helped me to um, realize why she's like that and it, it kind of gave me more peace and I react less when she when we have like um arguments about this stuff because I used to get so emotional about the fact that she couldn't accept that I have my own set of beliefs in comparison to hers and I also really like it because he's saying that um no religion is um the necessarily the right thing but it's also not the wrong thing and they're all trying to um root us to the same like point the same essence um and once you realize that you realize like it's just different methods with the same kind of goal of being spiritually awakened which is a beautiful thing page 72 quote on a collective level the mindset we are right and they are wrong is particularly deeply entrenched in those parts of the world where conflict between two nations, races, tribes, religions, or ideologies is long-standing, extreme, and endemic. Both sides of the conflict are equally identified with their own perspective, their own story, that is to say, identified with thought. Both are equally incapable of seeing that another perspective, another story may exist and also be valid." Unquote. So yeah he's talking about on a collective level um and i just find it interesting how um we can look at the world conflicts that go on um on a large scale and it's like madness to us like we can't understand like how could this possibly be happening how could people be bombing each other and fighting and killing people and whatnot um but i just think that it's important for us to realize that on a, a dialed down scale we kind of we practice the same behaviors in a very micro dose form um but our actions are essentially um the same uh so i think that if we want to try and change the world in the sense of how humans treat each other you do have to start in your daily interactions and look at what you do and how that plays a part in um in the world because so many people get into arguments on the daily about the smallest things like for example something i know i need to work on is my road rage um i get really bad road rage um and it's just one of those things where it's gotten a lot better because of this book because when i get into a situation where um i want to react I just remember that for some reason I feel so triggered by that um, and that person doesn't even know me like I need to just walk away from it and 
imagine like me starting a freaking argument or a fight or getting out of my car and fighting with someone in the street over like why because they like cut me off or I cut them off or whatever it is and then we could start brawling in the streets and like how is that any different from people starting like a major war between a big group of people you know like what that's just a smaller version of the same thought patterns like I need to be right I need to defend myself um no I don't I can just move on with my life maybe a bit annoyed or whatever but like yeah it's unnecessary is my point page 74 Quote, the particular egoic patterns that you react to most strongly in others and misperceive as their identity tend to be the same patterns that are also in you, but that you are unable or unwilling to detect within yourself. In that sense, you have much to learn from your enemies. What is it in them that you find most upsetting, most disturbing? Their selfishness, their greed, their need for power and control, their insecurity, dishonesty, propensity to violence or whatever it may be anything that you resent and strongly react to in another is also in you but is no more than a form of ego and as such it is completely impersonal it has nothing to do with who that person is nor has it anything to do with who you are only if you mistake it for who you are can observing it within you be threatening to your sense of self unquote okay so real talk for a second um, I was talking to my sister about this ages ago, but um, something that I was thinking about and realizing was um, when I was a lot younger and very insecure about myself, I didn't like girls in my class that were really like outspoken and confident and stuff. And I would just be like, oh, they're so annoying and blah, blah, blah. Like I would just, if people were like, oh, I like this person, I'd be like, I don't like them. They're so annoying. And it was just kind of like, like looking back I don't know like if this was a thought I had in the shower or something like that but I think it was definitely sparked by this quote but I just realized all of a sudden I was like the reason I didn't like them was because I wanted that I wanted to be confident in myself where I feel like I could speak my mind and not feel like I had to like kind of be quiet because I was so shy like in public like in my class and stuff for the most part not always but um, I just I wanted to be more comfortable with myself and then seeing the people that were confident with themselves that like really um, was the reason why I didn't like them but I did not realize that until like 24 years old and this happened when I was probably like 10 um, so yeah this quote really touches on that because um, yeah I mean it's kind of like a slightly bit different because I don't feel like I had that within myself but um it's what I wanted but um yeah I guess sometimes you have to ask yourself if something that annoys you about another person is because you're also low-key like that I don't know I just like that because it's very thought-provoking which this next quote expands on that page 82 Quote, if someone has more, knows more, or can do more than I, the ego feels threatened because the feeling of less diminishes its imagined sense of self relative to the other. It may then try to restore itself by somehow diminishing, criticizing, or belittling the value of the other person's possessions, knowledge, or abilities, 
or the ego may shift its strategy and instead of competing with the other person, it will enhance itself by association with that person if he or she is important in the eyes of others, unquote. So yeah, that's pretty much what I just said before about me trying to put down my classmates that were confident because I guess I felt threatened. So that was me trying to diminish them uh, and criticize them. But I guess another spin on that would have been like, I could have tried to befriend them so that it was like by association, I seem cooler or whatever. So I find that something like this is like, you don't necessarily need to speak out loud, like to admit to people that you do this, but if it's within your own head and you're checking yourself in your own head and be like, oh shit, yeah, I do that. You're now conscious of the fact that you are trying to like drag another person down. And if you are speaking that out into the universe, like try and stop doing that and um it's one thing to say it out loud it's another thing to just keep it to yourself in your own head um because it's still not good if it's you know you in your own head doing that but the difference is now say if I do that where I'm like low-key trying to find uh things to like drag a person down that I feel threatened by if it's in my head I'm I hear the thought and then I stop myself I'm like okay, yeah, that's definitely my ego getting in its defense mode. This person, for some reason, is making me feel triggered and it's not their fault. But that makes me reassess, like, what's going on there and think about, like, why I feel threatened. So essentially, you're learning a lot about yourself and why you feel threatened and also creating the separation in your mind and realizing that your thoughts are your like can be your ego talking and not actually who you are as a person okay page 83 quote the absurd overvaluation of fame is just one of the many manifestations of egoic madness in our world some famous people fall into the same error and identify with the collective fiction the image people and the media have created of them and they begin to actually see themselves as superior to ordinary mortals As a result, they become more and more alienated from themselves and others, more and more unhappy, more and more dependent on their continuing popularity. Surrounded only by people who feed their inflated self-image, they become incapable of genuine relationships. Albert Einstein, who was admired as almost superhuman and whose fate it was to become one of the most famous people on the planet, never identified with the image the collective mind had created of him. He remained humble egoless. In fact, he spoke of, quote, a grotesque contradiction between what people consider to be my achievements and abilities and the reality of who I am and what I am capable of, unquote. This is why it is hard for a famous person to be in a genuine relationship with others. A genuine relationship is one that is not dominated by the ego with its image-making and self-seeking. In a genuine relationship, there is an outward flow of open, alert attention towards the other person in which there is no wanting whatsoever. That alert attention is presence, is the prerequisite for any authentic relationship. The ego always either wants something or if it believes there is nothing to get from the other, it is in a state of utter indifference. It doesn't care about you. And so the three predominant states of egoic relationships are wanting, thwarted wanting, 
anger, resentment, blaming, complaining, and indifference, unquote. So unfortunately, because I work in the film industry, I see a lot of this, um, like a lot of people who think they're, um, like they clearly are putting themselves on a pedestal um, and think they're kind of better than other humans um, because they're like a famous actor or actress. Um, and, you know, especially when it's like younger actors, like, you know, it comes up like, oh, so-and-so is such a diva. And then some people will be like, oh, well, you know, they're like young and all of a sudden this fame hit them. And uh, like, it would be so hard to like not um, be that way and whatnot. And it's like, I understand what they're saying and whatnot, but um, yeah, that's because they're saying like fame equates with more value like you're more valued as a human if you're more famous if you think that way then yeah you are going to put yourself on a pedestal and if you think that way then you're going to put someone else who is famous on a pedestal in your mind but that's just because you're choosing to view fame as something that adds value to a human but it doesn't so I've seen A-list celebrities that are so freaking humble and it's because they know that what they're doing doesn't make them better than another human being and so they act completely normal and I just find it interesting how there are people who are not nearly as famous who act way worse um, and it's because they're like, oh, I'm an actor, you like, you should treat me like this um, in their heads but with... Um, the bigger names that are humble they're like I what I'm doing is I don't know for the enjoyment they love telling stories whatever but it doesn't make me better than a human being so I'm going to treat everyone with respect um but yeah sadly it's just more rare to find people in the industry who realize that and there's just so much like ego in the industry oh my goodness um I, yeah, even at work yesterday, there was an incident that I won't get into, but basically, um, this, uh, crew member said to a background performer who didn't want to do a specific thing, which is fine and completely in their right, they said, talk to me when you're number one, meaning, like, number one on the call sheet as an actor, and I just thought, who the hell cares if you're number one on the call sheet? Like, you should not be, like, talking to people like that. It doesn't matter your ranking within the industry. Like, you, it doesn't give you the right to talk to people like that. And that's what makes me sad because it's like he, that background person could walk away from it being like, well, I'm going to go become a big actor because then no one can ever disrespect me like that ever again. And people will treat me with respect. And then, yeah, I can say, I don't want to do this and no one will question me and blah, blah, blah. And that's just like a power trip. And that lady who said that was power tripping because she views her ranking in the industry as higher than a background performer. So she has the right to tell him what to do and speak to him like that. And it's just like the most whack thing ever. The film industry has been so eye-opening to humanity. Um, I find it really sad when people think that they can get away with things because they're famous um, or because they're um, 
an elite like crew member it's just disgusting like and so I've realized that the best way to deal with it is like to not get into a heated argument with people per se but just to kind of remind people that hey listen I don't care who you are I'm not allowing you to treat me like that and it can be said and done in a very calm way um but I think that makes people stop and be like oh shit and they realize like my ranking doesn't mean that I can tell people what to do because for example um I went on a date with an actor once and I felt like he he felt that he could get away with a lot of things and um because he's an actor and also like he felt like I would just be like falling all over him and down to do whatever because of who he was and stuff and I basically was like listen dude I don't give a fuck who you are like I don't want to do that so I'm not going to um I'm not going to put up with this like this doesn't match my standards and so I think it made him think more about like how fame doesn't buy you everything you want and it won't buy every person that you want so if you think that um becoming like a big famous celebrity that it will buy you whoever you want like anyone you want to date anyone like any possession you want and respect that you want it won't it might buy you a lot like a lot of people might give into that but they're after like your status that one piece of you and not necessarily like the authentic you um yeah anyway that's a whole other thing i'm not gonna get further into it moving on page 77 quote can you feel that there is something in you that is at war something that feels threatened and wants to survive at all costs that needs the drama in order to assert its identity as the victorious character within that theatrical production can you feel there is something in you that would rather be right than at peace unquote Page 96, quote, the primary cause of unhappiness is never the situation, but your thoughts about it. Be aware of the thoughts you are thinking. Separate them from the situation, which is always neutral, which always is as it is. There is the situation or the fact, and here are my thoughts about it. Instead of making up stories, stay with the facts. For example, I am ruined is a story. It limits you and prevents you from taking effective action. I have 50 cents left in my bank account is a fact. Facing facts is always empowering. Be aware of that what you think to a large extent creates the emotions that you feel. See the link between your thinking and your emotions. Rather than being your thoughts and emotions, be the awareness behind them." Unquote. Page 87. Quote, a very common role is the one of victim and the form of attention it seeks is sympathy or pity or others interest in my problems, me and my story. Seeing oneself as a victim is an element in many egoic patterns such as complaining, being offended, outraged and so on. Of course, once I am identified with a story in which I assign myself the role of victim, I don't want it to end. And so, as every therapist knows, the ego does not want an end to its problems because they are part of a, its identity. If no one will listen to my sad story, I can tell it to myself in my head over and over and feel sorry for myself and so have an identity as someone who is being treated unfairly by life or other people, fate or God. 
It gives definition to my self-image, makes me into someone, and that is all that matters to the ego, unquote. Page 98, quote, Parents then cannot let go of being a parent even when the child grows into an adult. <clears throat> they can't let go of the need to be needed by their child. Even when the adult child is four years old, parents can't let go of the notion, I know what's best for you. The role of parent is still being played compulsively and so there is no authentic relationships. Parents define themselves by that role and are unconsciously afraid of loss of identity when they cease being parents. If their desire to control or influence the actions of their child is thwarted, as it usually is, they will start to criticize or show their disapproval or try to make the child feel guilty, all in an unconscious attempt to preserve their role, their identity. On the surface, it looks as if they were concerned about their child and they themselves believe it, but they are only really concerned about preserving their role identity. All egoic motivations are self-enhancement and self-interest, sometimes cleverly disguised even from the person in whom the ego operates." Unquote. So this one helped me so much because, um, yeah, I feel like I definitely went through some struggles with my mom. Um, yeah, I didn't realize that she, she just felt like so threatened by not being a mother anymore like I didn't need her nearly as much as I used to that it was causing a lot of her suffering because she identified so strongly with her role as a mother she was a stay-at-home mom for uh, a lot of our lives and I can see why that would be hard so this book kind of helped me see and have more compassion for her because um of how he talks about like when you identify so strongly with um something as a part of your identity and a major part of your identity when you feel like you're losing it um it's you can't handle it like it, it creates so much suffering in you so yeah this is very interesting for parents and there's another quote that um is more advice for parents which is on page 101, quote, If you have young children, give them help, guidance, and protection to the best of your ability, but even more important, give them space, space to be. They come into this world through you, but they are not yours. The belief, I know what's best for you, may be true when they are young, but the older they get, the less true it becomes. The more expectations you have of how their life should unfold, the more you are in your mind instead of being present for them. Eventually, they will make mistakes and they will experience some form of suffering, as all humans do. In fact, they may be mistakes only from your perspective. What to you is a mistake may be exactly what your children need to do or experience. Give them as much help and guidance as you can, but realize that you may also at times have to allow them to make mistakes, especially as they begin to reach adulthood. At times, you may also have to allow them to suffer. Suffering may come to them out of the blue or it may come as the consequence of their own mistakes. Unquote. Page 107. Quote. In a world of role-playing personalities, those few people who don't project a mind-made image, and there are some even on TV, in the media, and the business world, but function from the deeper core of their being, those who do not attempt to appear more than they are but are simply themselves stand out as remarkable and are the only ones who truly make a difference in this world. They are the bringers of the new consciousness. Whatever they do becomes empowered because it is in alignment with the purpose of the whole. 
Their influence, however, goes far beyond what they do, far beyond their function. Their mere presence, simple, natural, unassuming, has a transformational effect on whoever they come into contact with. When you don't play roles, it means there is no self, ego, in what you do. There is no secondary agenda, protection, or strengthening of yourself. Unquote. Okay, so this is one of my favorite quotes on page 108. Quote, If you can be absolutely comfortable with not knowing who you are, then what's left of you is who you are. The being behind the human, a field of pure potentiality rather than something that is already defined. Give up defining yourself, to yourself or to others. You won't die, you will come to life. And don't be concerned with how others define you. When they define you, they are limiting themselves, so it's their problem. Whenever you interact with people, don't be there primarily as a function or a role, but as a field of conscious presence. Why does the ego play roles? Because of one unexamined assumption, one fundamental error, one unconscious thought. That thought is, I am not enough. Other unconscious thoughts follow. I need to play a role in order to get what I need to be fully myself. I need to get more so that I can be more. But you cannot be more than you are because underneath your physical and psychological form you are with one with life itself, one with being. In form you are and always will be inferior to some, superior to others. In essence you are neither inferior nor superior to anyone. True self-esteem and true humility arise out of that realization. In the eyes of the ego, self-esteem and humility are contradictory. In truth, they are one and the same. Unquote. Yeah, I really like that because basically he's saying that um, there will always be something like physically or psychologically about you that is could be considered inferior or superior um, when you think about it but the true essence of who you are it cannot be inferior or superior because the true essence of everybody is basically the same and equal page 119 quote the stronger the ego in you the more likely it is that in your perception other people are the main source of problems in your life it is also more than likely that you will make life difficult for others, but of course you won't be able to see that. It is always others who seem to be doing it to you, unquote. So yeah, I think this one's really important because yeah, if a lot of things are going wrong in your life, it's like you kind of have to stop and be like, is it other people who are causing it or is it all in my head? Like, am I making it that way? And one way of kind of realizing that is you kind of have to ask yourself, okay, well, what am I doing wrong in this situation? And if you're like, I'm not doing anything wrong, blah, 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 that's your ego being defensive because we all do something wrong at some point and some people really can't admit to when they're doing something wrong, like even the smallest things. And if you're not willing to... um acknowledge that then you're always going to have problems and it's always going to feel like it's caused by other people and it's just going to be one big complaining fest and your life will never get better or easier or anything so you have to start seeing how you play a part and how your ego plays a part in 
your problems. Page 123. Quote, Many people are truly their own worst enemy. People unknowingly sabotage their own work when they withhold help or information from others or try to undermine them lest they become more successful or get more credit than me. Cooperation is alien to the ego, except when there is a secondary motive. The ego doesn't know that the more you include others, the more smoothly things flow and the more easily things come to you. When you give little or no help to others or put obstacles in their path, the universe, in the form of people and circumstances, gives little or no help to you because you have cut yourself off from the whole. The ego's unconscious core feeling of not enough causes it to react to someone else's success as if that success had taken something away from me. It doesn't know that your resentment of another person's success curtails your own chances of success. In order to attract success, you need to welcome it wherever you see it." Unquote. This is also something I see in the film industry as well, or just because there's a lot of people in the film industry who are in the music industry as well, or the modeling industry as well. Um, yeah, it's like people kind of low-key try to sabotage another person. Um, not everyone does that, though, because there's lots of people who help. And I, I've noticed over the years that the people who are willing to help someone else and don't feel threatened by them, and they know that if that person were to... Um, say do better in that field um than they are doing then that was just how things were meant to go for that person and they don't mind helping that person anyway um yeah it, this is i feel i've found that the people who are willing to help are typically the most successful or they tend to be more successful in the long run versus the ones who withhold information or don't think that you should like tell people stuff um, that would help them because then it would take work away from you or whatever it is. Um, I, I wouldn't be where I am right now if it wasn't for the people who were willing to share um, information with me that helped me. Um, so I'm grateful for them. And I've also come across like a couple people who um, either withheld information, like they didn't want to go into detail, um, or they didn't say anything, or I actually had a woman once tell me the wrong information, which was interesting. But yeah, this definitely plays into like being genuinely happy when others succeed will actually um, help you to not block your own blessings. Which leads me to a quote from page 159. Quote, it is always the case that both victim and perpetrators suffer the consequences of any acts of violence, oppression, or brutality. For what you do to others, you do to yourself. Unquote. I like this a lot because it's basically just saying that whatever you put out there, you're adding to either the collective pain or the collective peace of the universe. Page 188. Quote, if peace is what you really want, then you will choose peace. If peace mattered to you more than anything else, and if you truly knew yourself to be spirit rather than a little me, you would remain non-reactive and absolutely alert when confronted with challenging people or situations. You would immediately accept the situation and thus become one with it rather than separate yourself from it. 
then out of your alertness would come a response. Who you are, consciousness, not who you think you are, a small me, would be responding, unquote. Page 189, quote, Very unconscious people experience their own ego through its reflection in others. When you realize that what you react to in others is also in you, and sometimes only in you, you begin to become aware of your own ego. At that stage, you may also realize that you were doing to others what you thought others were doing to you. You cease seeing yourself as a victim. You are not the ego, so when you become aware of the ego in you, it does not mean you know who you are. It means you know who you are not. But it is through knowing who you are not that the greatest obstacle to truly knowing yourself is removed. Nobody can tell you who you are. It would just be another concept, so it would not change you. Unquote. Page 190. Quote, Acknowledging the good that is already in your life is the foundation for all abundance. Unquote. Page 193, quote, whatever you learn through psychoanalysis or self-observation is about you. It is not you. It is content, not essence. Going beyond ego is stepping out of content. Knowing yourself is being yourself and being yourself is ceasing to identify with content, unquote. So this ties into what you feel is your identity um, and how that is not who you truly are in your essence. It's um, just something about you, um, like a part of your story, but it's not actually who you are. It's really hard to explain, honestly, but um, when you read the full book, like, it makes way more sense. Okay, jumping back to the whole, like, fame topic or whatever, this quote is from page 216. Quote, if you are content with being nobody in particular content not to stand out, you align yourself with the power of the universe. What looks like weakness to the ego is in fact the only true strength. This spiritual truth is diametrically opposed to the values of our contemporary culture and the way it conditions people to behave, unquote. Yeah, I find that so, so interesting and so cool. Like, yeah, the people who are like they don't care about like social media and they don't care about being like in the public eye at all um yeah they tend to be the most like aligned with nature aligned with themselves um they just care about different things and they're just very I don't know they're very woke very calm people um in comparison to people who are like chasing fame and chasing status and all that stuff and it's not to say that you can't pursue things that would put you in the public eye but it's just I think if your motivation behind it is to realign yourself with the whole with the universe with other people like say if you're a musician and you're creating music music brings people together um, and it expresses like human emotion and stuff in a way that um it's like a collective feeling and actually I was thinking about how at concerts everyone is so present because they're so into the music and it's one of those places that when you look around like you just feel an energy and it's so alive because uh, yeah it's not like people are sitting on their phones like not paying attention to what's going on like they're paying attention to what's going on they're into the music um 
people aren't thinking about what they're going to be doing tomorrow, typically, you know, like everyone's in the moment. It's such a beautiful experience. And so if you're a musician and you're pursuing being a musician, if it's about that more so than being famous um, and rich and whatnot, then I think you're on the right track and you, you get it. Like you're trying to be more in alignment with people in the universe and I think same thing goes for acting too because it's stories that bring people together and remind you of um human emotion and human feeling and stuff uh whether it's a comedy or a horror or whatever I'm rambling on but yeah (laughs) I just think a lot of people don't get it like they think that in order to be spiritually enlightened you have to become like a monk and go live like in solitude and whatnot but like you don't you can become more spiritual spiritually aligned and still be involved in things that are um very like ego driven but if your intention isn't that like it's fine okay i'm nearing the end of my list of quotes so page 225 quote Once you see and accept the transience of all things and the inevitability of change, you can enjoy the pleasures of the world while they last without fear or without fear of loss or anxiety about the future. When you are detached, you gain a higher vantage point from which to view the events in your life instead of being trapped inside them, unquote. This um, whole chapter really helped me because I would feel anxious about change and like moving and people moving and then work changing and all that stuff and I just felt like I was a constant ball of anxiety even though it wasn't like um a lot of anxiety but it was still constantly there because I was just constantly worried about change um and so if you go and read this book like that chapter um I think really helps anyone who has anxiety about the future page 235 quote Many poets and sages throughout the ages have observed that true happiness, I call it the joy of being, is found in simple, seemingly unremarkable things. Most people, in their restless search for something significant to happen to them, continuously miss the insignificant, which may not be insignificant at all, unquote. So Eckhart Tolle talks a lot about being present, like being in the present moment, which um, is what The Power of Now is about, but I haven't actually read that book but I would like to. Um, There's another quote on page 239 of A New Earth. Quote, some people feel more alive when they travel and visit unfamiliar places or foreign countries because at those times, sense perception, aka experiencing, takes up more of their consciousness than thinking. They become more present. Others remain completely possessed by the voice in the head even then. Their perceptions and experiences are distorted by instant judgments. They haven't really gone anywhere. Only their body is traveling while they remain where they have always been, in their head, unquote. So I recently went to Europe in July and reading this right now makes me realize that I definitely had um, an experience of being too much in my head and being present. And obviously I enjoyed myself more when I was present than when I was too much in my head. So this is interesting. And this is what I love about the book because each time you read it, it will probably make you reflect on new things each time. 
page 263, quote, If caring for your children gives meaning to your life, what happens to that meaning when they don't need you and perhaps don't even listen to you anymore? If helping others gives meaning to your life, you depend on others being worse off than yourself so that your life can continue to be meaningful and you can feel good about yourself. If the desire to excel, win, or succeed at this or that activity provides you with meaning, what if you never win or if your winning streak comes to an end one day, as it will? You would then have to look to your imagination or memories, a very unsatisfactory place to bring meager meaning into your life. Making it in whatever field is only meaningful as long as there are thousands or millions of others who don't make it, so you need other human beings to fail so that your life can have meaning. I am not saying here that helping others, caring for your children, or striving for excellence in whatever field are not worthwhile things to do. For many people, they are an important part of their outer purpose, but outer purpose alone is always relative, unstable, and impermanent. This does not mean that you should not be engaged in those activities. It means you should connect them to your inner primary purpose so that a deeper meaning flows into what you do. Unquote. Page 266. Quote, the great arises out of small things that are honored and cared for. Everybody's life really consists of small things. Greatness is a mental abstraction and a favorite fantasy of the ego. The paradox is that the foundation for greatness is honoring the small things of the present moment instead of pursuing the idea of greatness. The present moment is always small in the sense that it is always simple, but concealed within it lies the greatest power." Unquote. Okay, and so for the last two quotes, um, I really just threw these in here because I just found them super interesting. Um, yeah, so page 277, quote, Nature exists in a state of unconscious oneness with the whole. This, for example, is why virtually no wild animals were killed in the tsunami disaster of 2004. Being more in touch with the totality than humans, they could sense the tsunami's approach long before it could be seen or heard and so had time to withdraw to higher terrain perhaps even that is looking at it from a human perspective they probably just found themselves moving to higher terrain doing this because of that is the mind's way of cutting up reality whereas nature lives in unconscious oneness with the whole unquote and the last quote is from page 293 quote the brain does not create consciousness, but consciousness created the brain, the most complex physical form on earth for its expression. When the brain gets damaged, it does not mean you lose consciousness. It means consciousness can no longer use that form to enter this dimension. You cannot lose consciousness because it is, in essence, who you are. You can only lose something that you have, but you cannot lose something that you are. Unquote. I don't know about you, but after reading all these quotes, I kind of feel like it's been a mindfuck all over again because <laughs> it's got me thinking about a lot of stuff. But um, yeah, that's the end of my quotes that I pulled from the book. There are so many more that um, I had pulled but then scrapped because I didn't want to read the entire book on this podcast and it probably feels and sounds like I did, but I actually didn't. There's so much more to it. Um, but I really hope that this motivates you to read it um, and to th just look deeper into things but I think that will only happen if it's the right time in your life for you but um, I was just I was never aware of the existence of this book until the guy that I had talked about at the beginning 
um, had told me about it and I think um, yeah you can't be motivated to read something that you don't know exists so I'm putting it out there and what you do with it is what you do with it but I really hope you enjoyed this episode and yeah if you end up reading the book please let me know what you think of it by DMing me personally or you can email me Um, but yeah thank you so much for listening until next time if you have any comments questions concerns or requests for future episodes please email i'm an adult now what at gmail.com i read every email and would love to hear from you please subscribe to receive future updates on episodes and if you feel like it please rate this podcast on your streaming platform of choice